and they surely need to, I'm going to fast for you all night long tonight. <laughs> Brethren, it is wonderful to be with you. I cannot tell you how humbled I am and how conversely honored I am that you would have me. I am so appreciative of what you are endeavoring to continue. And I believe that by the grace of God, you remaining faithful. It may not be big and explosive, but it will be impactful upon the kingdom of this world until our Lord of glory returns. And I'm so blessed to see so many of you renew fellowship and friendship with you and to meet new ones and thankful for your fellowship in your presence and also again for this privilege. I have been assigned for these next three nights to thank you for getting the lights fixed so I can read without my spectacles. Well, second thought, I'm going to have to have them. My confession print is awful small. I have been assigned for the next three nights to deal with this portion of our confession, chapter 26, which as you know is the largest chapter of our confession, and especially paragraph 10, which states, the work of pastors being con constantly to attend to, to the service of Christ in his churches, in the ministry of the word and prayer with watching for their souls as they that must give an account to him. The rest deals with the responsibility, responsibilities of the church toward these pastors. And so tonight, I will begin with the first part of what our forefathers deemed to be indispensable of the ministry of pastor. So if you would take your... Bibles and turn with me tonight to 1st Timothy or 2nd Timothy chapter 4 to a very very familiar passage a passage which most of you have probably preached from or at least heard sermons from it when I was asked to come and preach I sensed a constraint upon my soul in dealing with this to try to unfold this passage to you and prepare you I know you as pastors Every week you give and give, you pour yourselves out, you, like Paul says as a drink offering, seek to feed the flock, seek to exalt Christ, to proclaim his gospel, and you need your batteries charged, you need your plates filled, and a danger in coming to a passage like this is that we become too familiar with the holy. It's like the men of Beth Shemesh when the ark returned from the Philistines and the cows brought the ark there. The men of Beth Shemesh took it upon themselves to peer into the ark and God killed 7,000. And I know that in my own personal life it is, there is a danger of becoming too familiar with the holy and not seeing it as what it really is. And I pray tonight as we come to this passage of scripture that God will be pleased to deliver us 
from that casual approach and attitude to his word. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to read in your hearing tonight verses 1 through 5. And since this church uses the New King James, I will be using that version as well tonight. Hear now the word of the living God. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And thus far the reading of God's inerrant and infallible and authoritative word. May he who by his spirit wrote this, by the, may the spirit of God give us ears to hear. Let's pray. Our great immeasurable God, our Father, the one who is in heaven, we come into your presence. We are mindful that you're upon your throne and we are upon your footstool. But we thank you that you have not left us in darkness, that you have given us a more sure word of prophecy, something more sure than if Christ was corporally present with us, we could see him, handle him, and touch him. You've given us your infallible and errant authoritative word. And so tonight I pray that, Spirit of God, you would do your office work and encourage, strut, build up, and bless these men to return back to their churches, ready to put their hands to the plow once more, and do that which according to the world is not glamorous. It's not tantalizing, but it's that to which you have called us. And we will thank you as we ask all of these things in the worthy name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Again, as I said, all of you are familiar with this passage. Maybe some of you pastors have preached from this passage. There couple of people that have heard me preach this sermon and I told them pretend that you have never heard it but if it's worth as I had a professor say one time if it's worth preaching once if it's the truth of God's word it's worth preaching again and so I want to speak to you tonight as what our forefathers instructed us that the work of the pastoral ministry is first of all ministry of the word and here I could think of no better passage than this very one that I've read in your hearing. Here is a man who is giving unto us his last inspired recording words. Here is a man under sentence of death. As he would say in verse 6, For I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. 
Many New Testament scholars believe that Paul had already exhausted every appeal to Caesar. There were no further avenues by which he might escape, though he did trust and he did believe of even until his dying day. And here as a dying man, or a man under the sentence of death, would write to his son, the one whom he would call his son in the faith, what would be his last words? There's no hint of pity. There's no hint of sadness. There's no hint of remorse or regret. Instead, he is not concerned about Paul. He is concerned about the glory and the magnificence of Christ and the continuation of his church because he knows that the visible church is central to all the redemptive purposes in Christ Jesus. That's why we are not an association of pastors. We are an association of churches, visible saints of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here he is. You know, the words of a, the last words of a man or a woman are very telling. The French wicked, ungodly philosopher Voltaire on his deathbed was asked, Aren't you fearful of dying? Aren't you afraid of standing before God? He said, no. God will forgive me. That's his business. Here, we see just the opposite of that. Paul is not concerned with himself. He is concerned about his son, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the church. Several things I'd like to draw out from this passage of scripture tonight. The first thing I would have us to see, to you especially who are called of God into the gospel ministry, is to realize this, the presence of him before, before whom you are called. Isn't it interesting how Paul opens this up? I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. is a present tense here. And so many times we forget. I believe there is an immediate presence of Christ. Christ is always with his people, is he not? His covenant promise in Hebrews 13, I will never, no, never leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. But there is his special presence when we gather together as his elect, redeemed, believing people to worship him. And now Paul, here in this Roman jail, in this prison cell, is reminding Timothy, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that when we step into the pulpit, when we step behind what has often been called the sacred desk, we open up the Holy Scriptures and we read God's Word and seek to expound it. We are in the immediate presence of God in a very special way. You have been called. We have been called as his pastors, as his elders, as his bishops and overseers to handle the word of God. And of course, not only is there the immediate presence, but there is also the eschatological presence, as he says here, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and kingdom. There is an eschaton. There is an end. There is a telos. Time as we know it will not continue. 
There will be a day when he shall return in clouds of glory. And as our subordinate standard, the Confession 1689 tells us, we will have to give an account. And so he's reminding Timothy, you need to remember the presence of him before whom you are called. I believe a pastor should be, first of all, a Christian. But there are requirements put upon us as pastors who have received the internal call of Christ that are not necessarily put upon the believers, the, the saints. And we live and move in his holy presence. So Paul begins this charge with a reminder of the presence of him before whom they are called. The second thing I want you to see tonight is the work to which you're called. That may seem so simple to you. And yet I want to make it fresh if I may, if I'm able. What did Paul instruct Timothy to do? Now listen, make sure you visit the hospitals. Make sure you take care of the widows. Oh yes, we need to do those. But what is our primary calling? Notice these words. Preach the word. We have been called to a work that is magnanimous. It is wonderful. It is glorious. We have been given a stewardship, and we are called to be, according to Acts 6-4, servants of the word. We cannot play footloose and fancy free with it. We cannot pick and choose. We are to preach to authoritatively declare and herald. This is what the Lord God says. This is what our sovereign Lord declares. We are nothing more than messengers. And he says to Timothy, preach. Don't have a quarrel gathering. Don't have, as they say here in the South, a sanging. Some of you from the Midwest and the North and the West won't understand that, but you drive around the countryside singing Saturday night. He didn't call us to have singing, mime, drama, none of these things. We're called to stand and humbly proclaim what? The word. The word. And of course now, remember that Paul is still writing the New Testament. This would be his last book. The rest of the New Testament would be completed. And I remember being taught that the canon was actually completed 393 with the Council of uh, uh, Hippo. And they began the discussion of what is the completed canon being sparked on by Athanasius' festal or Easter letter of 367. And they finally concluded the canon, closed the canon in 398. I don't buy into that now. I think there's some really good, I think Michael Kruger has some good things to teach us about this. And I think by 125, there was a completed canon of the New Testament being circulated among the churches. It may have had 
the pseudepigrapha books of maybe Barnabas or the shepherd of Hermas or so forth, but there was the completed canon. But there was still the word to preach. There was still the Old Testament. And when Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures, to what scriptures were Paul referring? They preached Christ and the gospel from the Old Testament. And his death, his burial, his resurrection is found in the Old Testament. Preach the word. And as Paul is writing the word and others would write after Paul, he is reminding them of the supremacy of the word of God. And that's why I have tried throughout almost from the very inception of my ministry to preach book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You know what that does? That delivers the people from you. It causes them not to look to you, but to look to the word of the living God who will point them to our thrice holy God. Preach the word. So what are you to do? First of all, you are to preach the word. How are you to preach, or when are you to preach the word? I love this when he says here, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Let me talk with you, speak with you from my heart tonight. Have any of you had such a terrible week you've struggled in your study? You can't get, seem to get your easel to please you. You can't get things the way you want to. You fiddle and you fuss. You're reworking and rewriting your manuscripts. You've had one battle after another battle after another battle. And you get up on Sunday morning and you think, oh, man, I'd like to be 100 miles from here. I would like to go to another church and sit under another pastor and have him to nourish my soul today. I'm sure none of you have been there. And yet, what do you do? Because there's a sense of the divine upon your soul. This did not take God by surprise. You are out of season, so to speak. And yet, you are to go and declare and proclaim the word of the living God. This is what the Lord God says. In season, sometimes it's so wonderful, isn't it? You stand up and you can't seem, you depart from your manuscript, you depart from your notes, and it seems like you words are entering your mind quicker than you can speak them. And then there are other times it's like a concrete truck backs up to your mouth and is dumping a load of semen in, and you fight for every word. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if the sun is shining bright. It doesn't matter if a dark cloud is looming over your head. It doesn't matter if you are fraught with fears and doubts and you question your own calling. What matters is that God has given us his word and it is appointed on that day, that hour, for you to stand up and read the holy scriptures, 
and expound them to the best of your God-given ability and declare this is what the Lord says. In season and out of season. It's easy to do it in season, more difficult when it's out of season. I'm reminded of an anecdote during the time of the Great Awakening. These men in England were preaching all over the place. I mean, Whitfield go to barns and they go to the coal mines and they would be preaching all over the place. And so the Archbishop of Canterbury passed the law that ministers in the Church of England could only preach twice a week. And then he get, begins hearing reports of these ministers who have been touched by divine fire from heaven upon their souls and they're preaching in the streets, they're preaching in cornfields, they're preaching in the marketplaces, they're preaching seven and eight times a week, they're seeing, like in Whitfield's instance, colliers converted, and as they're coming out of the mines, he's preaching to them, and their faces are black with coal dust, and they see tears running down their faces, he sees tears running down their faces. These men were preaching, and so one of these men was called in to his bishop, and he says, there's a report that you're violating the canon law of the church. You're preaching more than twice a week. And he said, oh, no, sir. He said, well, what do we do with these reports? He said, how many times a week do you preach? And he said, only twice. And he said, only twice. He said, yes, in season and out of season. <laughs> and we are to be in season and out of season when the host of hell are warring against our souls we don't feel like getting into the pulpit you may be driving to church and your perfect perfectly sanctified wife says something and you snap at her and all of a sudden you're convicted i know that's never happened to any of you guys either and you think oh man I'm getting ready to enter into the assembly of God's people and preach. It doesn't matter. When are you to preach? In season and out of season, which is going to require you to be in your study, to pay your dues there. Don't just pick up some sermon book, and I know, I'm sure that none of you do that. If you do, we're going to, I'm going to contact the moderators and vice moderators and everybody else to go cut a hickory switch on you. <laughs> but how are you to do this? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. How are you to do this? And I don't have time. I'm not going to give you a lecture in Greek morphology here. But these are wonderful words that tell us how we're to do it. When we're in the pulpit, when we're ministering the word of God as servants of God's word, we need to preach the word in such a way that it will convince the people. This is truth. It may not be according to my comfort zone, but I need to convince them that their comfort zone is not the directive of everything. You convince them. You, in this translation, you rebuke them. 
that shouldn't be often. I remember one time in California, this man came up, visited us for the first time, and he says, I just want you to know I have a ministry of rebuke. And I said, I said, not in this church, you don't. But there are times when we must rebuke. It's not pleasant. If you find it pleasant, then something's wrong with you. But you must. And not only rebuke, but you're also to exhort. Awake, you sleepers. Put your mind on these things. Let them filter down through your mind and into your soul. Don't be hearers of the word and thus deceive yourselves. But be doers of the word. Apply it. John Owen said, It is easier to preach against a thousand sins of others than to put one of yours to death. And how true that is. And we need to exhort our flocks that Christ has given us. Hear, apply, and so forth. And then, as he says here, to, with all, I like the way the ESV puts it, with all, with complete patience and teaching. I'll deal with this word later on, not tonight. But there is one word that I do not, especially like I just wish it wasn't in the scriptures and I wish it wasn't in our English language and it's the word patience we want things done yesterday do we not I remember taking a college French course and we were learning vocabulary and I heard our professor say patience and I said I know what that word is and I don't have to look at the lexicon and I don't like it. But to be patient in convincing, to be patient in rebuking, patient in exhorting with all long suffering, the New King James says. Man, don't you wish we could just snap our fingers and all of a sudden people would begin to grow in grace? I'll never forget in my own personal ministry when my theology caught up with my practice. I realized I could not save anyone and then one day it dawned on me I cannot change the hearts of the sheep. But I can be faithful in declaring to them this is what the Lord God says. This is what is incumbent upon you to do. So, Here's the second thing, the work to which you're called. And don't grow weary in well-doing. I remember my Spanish teacher in high school, I was very frustrated, and I said to him, I said, Mr. Callum, how can I learn Spanish? And he said, repitero, repitero, repitero. Peter said, it is necessary for me to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. You already know these things. And as Spurgeon said, whatever is true is not new, and whatever is new is not true. We'll be repeating ourselves often because the word of God repeats itself. And so you are too with patient teaching. 
the third thing I want us to see from this passage of Scripture is the warning to be heeded during your call. Beginning with verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching. But according to their own desires, because they have ears that itch and want you to scratch them, they will heap to themselves teachers. There are four things that Paul warns his son in the faith, this young pastor, Timothy. He reminds them, he said, for the time will come. Certain, time, certain ones will not want to hear the truth or they will grow tired of hearing the truth. And that's why I, I, I firmly believe that we need to preach. Some people don't maybe like this, but I get up in the mornings. You've heard me, some of you. I don't feel saved until I've had my first cup of coffee. Don't even start to remotely feel sanctified until I've had my second cup. Thank God coffee doesn't determine my standing in union with Christ. And I need to remind myself as I sit on the edge of the bed, Christ has died for my sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. He submitted himself to death under the authority and power of death for three days and three nights. And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. I need to remind myself of this constantly. One man said to me, well, can't you just do something besides preach the gospel? And I said, if I don't preach the gospel, what do I have? What do I have? So Paul warns Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure. They will not tolerate. They will not put up with it any longer. Sound doctrine. They at first were excited. They were first encouraged. But it soon lost its luster. The beauty of Christ begins to recede into the background. The preciousness that they first tasted when they were brought savingly to him begins to dim. They want something new. They want something scintillating. They will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires. I, I can, I'm trying to fight back, try to stay on my notes, but a hundred illustrations come into my mind. This professor, when I was in California, this, in L.A., this professor of, of communications at Cal State Long Beach was regularly attending our church. He attended for about three years, and he came up to me and he said, you know what? He said, you're preaching too much of Jesus. And I thought, oh, that's a new one. And about a year later, he said, you're preaching too much duty. Same man. And I thought, you know what? 
I must be doing something right because he's not pleased with anything. <laughs> he later walked away and renounced his faith and became an apostate. But there will come a time when people will not want to hear the truth they, or they will grow tired of hearing it. But then the second thing he reminds them in this warning is that they will seek out teachers so-called that will tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. There are a number of things in Holy Scripture that were I writing it, I would not include. But God has put them there. And whether they invade my comfort zone or not, I am to heed them. I've said one verse in particular, love your enemies. I do not want to love my enemies. But Jesus didn't say to me 2,000 years ago, is it all right if I put that in the scriptures? We are commanded. And he says they will seek out teachers, so-called, that will turn them away and they will tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Furthermore, notice this. This is very, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away, literally stop their ears to the truth. Truth is paramount. They don't want to hear the whole counsel of God, which we will seek to look at. They will turn their ears away. They will stop up their ears from listening to the truth. And furthermore, they will, as he says here, and turn aside to fables. They will wander away into myths and fables. This is a warning, Timothy. Don't let this. Two things, two applications, two uses to this. First of all, in your pastoral ministries, you're going to find people that you, were thought, you thought were rock solid that would stand with you through thick and thin. And when the fire came, they were nowhere to be found. Don't let this surprise you. I think as I, you read down the end of this chapter, and Canon F.W. Farrar has a book on sermons of biblical characters. And I read one on his sermon on Demas. Demas has forsaken me. Demas has forsaken me. Having loved this present world. I think of David. When Absalom rebels against him. And the man with whom he had walked to the house of God, Ahithophel, rather than siding himself with David, goes to Absalom and seeks David's destruction. And David says, my own familiar friend with whom I had gone to the house of God. He knew that sense of betrayal. So when these things happen, people that you thought would stand the test and the fires when all of a sudden they're like chocolate soldiers. You know, a chocolate soldier really looks good, smells good, especially to someone 
who is a chocoholic like someone sitting right over here whose name I won't call. But when the heat comes, what happens? They begin to melt. So when you see this, when you see people beginning, as Paul says, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will heap to themselves teachers. They will turn away from the truth. They will turn aside to fables. Do not let this surprise you. Furthermore, Another usage of this is do not allow this to give you cause to flinch or to pause. If the, if the truth of God causes them to turn away, then where are you going to find any substitute? So, here is the warning that you need to heed during your call. Don't flinch. If you haven't read it recently, and I went back and read it again, The Greatest Fight in the World by Spurgeon. It was his last discourse at his pastor's college just before he died. And it is so oratorical. You can hear the heart of the man I mean, when the Baptist Union came to vote just on a simple 14-statement articles of faith, they were 108 ministers. And the vote against Spurgeon was 1,000, and only seven stood with him. His own brother turned against him. And you read his The Greatest Fight in the World as he talks about the struggles and the temptations of a pastor. And we face them regularly. We face them constantly. So, be warned. And fourthly and finally, the weathering to be exhibited in your call. Notice in verse 5. But you, you Timothy... You know these things. You are in the immediate presence of God as his minister. You have an eschatological end coming. You know that people will turn. They will not heed. They will not endure. But you, you must weather these things. Some of you are going to leave this week and go back to your churches, and you're going to hear of this difficulty, this problem. This situation, some of them are so perplexing, you wish they'd taught you that in pastoral theology at seminary. They just didn't. Notice, as for you, which is in contrast to those listed in verses 3 and 4, what are you to do? First of all, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Don't just fall asleep. Don't be somnolent on your job. Be watchful. Be sober-minded, in essence. A drunk person does not watch. Watch Timothy. You're on guard duty. It was... 
It was a death penalty for a, a century to fall asleep on, on his watch. We have a watch. This is not heaven. This is not glory. Glory is to come. This is a day of labor and trial and difficulty. He leads into that endure afflictions, plural, ellipsoi. Endure these trials, these hardships, the times when you want to put your hand to the plow and say, I plowed my last furrow. Endure these afflictions. They're coming. Be perseverant in these things. These afflictions are not just physical, though some have gone through severe physical affliction. We prayed this morning for two different brothers, our brother in Santa Teresa and our brother there with the brethren in Georgetown, our brother Steve. These Paul says these light, momentary afflictions work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Endure these afflictions. Third thing he says here, do the work of an evangelist. He didn't say become an evangelist. He said do the work of an evangelist. There was an elder in my former church in Shreveport who used to say, you just don't go to the gas station to get gas. There's someone there that you'll need to speak of Christ. Watch for struggling souls. Be with those that herald and proclaim the gospel. And then lastly, he says, fulfill your ministry. The ESV uses the same wording, fulfill your ministry. For one day, day by day, you must not give up. In 1990, I'm an older guy, I can say this. In 1990, I was sitting at my desk and the phone rang. And it was a call. Did you hear about brother so-and-so? If I were to call the name, many, not most of you, would recognize it. He has fallen. And I sit there, and I wept. And I had a drawer, lower domain, I pulled it out, and I had a list of men that I knew, either personally knew, most of them, and those that I knew about, that had started well, exhibited great graces and great gifts, and all of a sudden, something happens. And I looked at that list on one side of the page and down the other, and I wrote down this man's name, and it was so depressing, I ripped it, well, I actually put it in the paper shredder. And I prayed then, and I pray for you, and I pray that you'll pray for yourself. Let me fulfill my ministry. 
Don't require the church that ordained you to hand back your ordination papers. Don't cause your church to be ashamed when your name is called. The church where my wife and I are members now, six years ago, they had a wonderful, from all reports, pastor. Westminster, Westminster Seminary graduate, graduate was Dr. Randus. He had done everything but complete his dissertation. And all of a sudden, they thought, but it was really a spiritual decay in, on the inside. All of a sudden, he walks away from the faith, leaves his wife, his children. It's a mess. May the Lord preserve us and keep us from such things. Paul says to the young Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Don't flinch. Don't back up. Remember, you are a servant of the word, which is a servant of the living God. Fulfill your ministry. Let me make some very quick applications when we close tonight. My dear brothers in the ministry, you are called to the most glorious work on the earth. Do you realize that? You are called to the most glorious work on the earth. You are a servant of the word of God Almighty, our triune God. Your calling is greater than being the president of the United States, the prime minister of London, or of any other country. One time, I'm humbled by this, when I was planning a church in Utah, got some kind of insurance mixed up and had to go downtown to the big insurance building there in Provo, Utah, right just a f within sight of Brigham Young University, talking with the manager and so forth and trying to get things straightened out. And he said, you know, what type of work do you do? And I said, well, what do you think? He said, I don't know, but I'd like to offer you a job. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, what are you making out? No, don't tell me. I can tell you this that within two years you'll be making $250,000, and this is 1978. I'd like to be making $250,000 right now in 2023. <laughs> I don't know about you. And he said, I can promise you within five years you will be making $500,000. I can train you. You can be a representative here on the West Coast. And I said, I can't do it. He said, why? I said, because I would be stepping down from what I'm doing now. And he said, what are you doing now? And I said, I am a servant of the word of the living God. Man, do you realize what a wonderful, what a wonderful calling that Christ has entrusted to you. Go and be my servant. Declare my word. Proclaim, herald. This is what the Lord God says. Secondly, you are called not only to the most rewarding, but conversely the most trying and difficult work on all the earth. 
No wonder Martin Luther could say, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. He understood. Athanasius understood that. Exiled five times because of Christ and his gospel. This is not, Isaac Watts puts it so well in the hymn, doesn't it? Must I be carried to the skies in flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? No, I must fight if I would win. Increase my courage, Lord. It is the most wonderful and rewarding work on all the earth, but conversely, it is one with the most trying and difficult conflicts. If the shepherd is stricken, what will happen to the sheep? Thirdly, be confident that God, through Christ, will accomplish his decree and work. And how will he do that? Through his word. Preach the word. God promised through the prophet Isaiah, my word shall not return unto me void. It will accomplish the work whereunto I have sent it. One sows, another waters, but what? God gives the increase. And so have this confidence that the folk that are there, God is working. And through them, he will work as they go. Don't grow weary in well-doing. And last of all, you are called to a work that requires unswerving loyalty and undying perseverance. Fulfill your ministry. Christ has entrusted this to you. Paul said he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And he requires of you loyalty. The crown rights of Jesus must be defended, especially in this dark hour in which we live. Give unswerving loyalty and undying perseverance to Christ and his gospel. It will not be loved. It will not be readily received. But God will use it to call out his elect call the people who are sitting in darkness and shadow of death into the light of his glorious son. Loyalty is a word that we've lost today. We sing soldiers of Christ arise, but we don't like to talk about being soldiers. Endure hardness as a good soldier. Remain loyal. Undying perseverance. Fulfill your ministry by being true and faithful unto Christ the eternal Son of the eternal God, his holy gospel, his inerrant word. And the Lord, we here, have been entrusted with a wonderful subordinate standard. This old document, someone said, man, there are too many old words in there. I said, yes, but it's a sure and safe guide, isn't it? 
I was around in 1979 and 80 and 81 when they had the three Dallas conferences. Some of you may have not even heard of them. But they were dealing with the issues of is the law, the moral law of God for us today? And they were dealing with the perpetuity of the moral law. I had friends who were over in what became known as New Covenant Theology. The thing that kept me from straying were, was this book, and especially two chapters, chapter 19 and 22. It's not perfect, only the Holy Scriptures are. It's not infallible. Only the Holy Scriptures have that authority and power. But it is a safe guide for us. Don't easily jettison it. And then value your precious wife, your children. The man that I referred to earlier, his wife comes occasionally to church and she sits in the back row and you can hear her wailing. It breaks your heart. His one of his children came, and the child, the young man, is so hardened and calloused because he sat under his father's preaching, and then he watched what his father did, and he despises his father. Man, be faithful to your precious wives your children in the visible church of Jesus Christ. You don't want something to happen and when your name at your church is called and you've not fulfilled your ministry, people blush or mumble it in embarrassment. Stay close to Christ. Preach his word. Exalt him. His praise proclaim. Let's pray. Our immeasurable, immeasurable Father tonight, as I have sought to humbly unpack this passage of Scripture, I pray that by your Spirit you will sovereignly apply it, effectually apply it to all of our minds and hearts. Bless each one of the dear men of God here, their wives, their families, those who are visiting. We're living in days where the exclusivity of Christ is mocked. The word of God is trampled upon. The church is lightly esteemed. But help us to go back to the places where you have providentially placed us and be faithful ministers and preach the word. Grant it for Christ's sake. And for your great glory, Father, and the magnificence of the Spirit of God, one God, eternally made known in three persons. Amen.